0: Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms, or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. And once again, I am sick, and so my voice sounds awful. Thank you for putting up with it. You'll enjoy it throughout the rest of the show.
1: It's the paleness. It is, and the paleness. Yeah, yeah, I look like a ghost. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, And I'm here with my co-host, Maureen Kavanaugh.
1: Hello. How are you? I know how you are. You're not well at all. Yes,
0: I know I'm not well. But still, we are here. And uh, today, we have some special guests with us. We have um, Rod Rushing from the Peer Coach Academy in Colorado. Uh, along with Angelo Lagaris from the Latino Recovery Advocacy in Florida, who is partnering up with Rod, and we're going to hear about that a little later on in the show. But welcome. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us. us. Of course. I'm excited to talk Good. to you. Yeah, it was very nice to meet both of you, and I was kind of catching up before the show and uh, just getting to understand what it is that the two of you are up to out there. And um, maybe, Rod, you could start by telling us what it is that you do. Um, sure. And uh, um, maybe we can learn a little bit about how you were able to draw Angelo in To your new project. Okay, that sounds great. So
2: actually, I started, Pure Coach Academy was founded in 2014. I went out to CCAR and fell in love with the CCAR recovery coach training, and I became a trainer and I brought it back to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And we became a nonprofit in 2016. And so I've just been doing recovery coach trainings because we didn't have much of that going on here at the time. And CCAR's program is really person centered, and I just so much I love about it. Mm -hmm. um and i think we've trained this year it showed uh since 2015 really when we did our first training 787 people have been certified as recovery coaches in colorado and we've trained 50 recovery coach trainers in
1: colorado
0: yeah yeah (laughs) now can i can I ask you a quick question? Because out here in Massachusetts, we have um, uh, sixty hours of training that's necessary. So it's uh, the the initial thirty, which is the RCA, the Recovery Coach Academy, and then an additional thirty that's made up of a variety of different things, um, including uh, um, including the uh, you know motivational interviewing and a variety of other things. Um, now, do you take your students through beyond the initial RCA, beyond yeah. the initial thirty?
2: Yes, I do. Um, I actually have been back to Connecticut like five times. And
0: I've become a core trainer
2: for CCAR. So I train all the curriculum that they have, which is seven different trainings. And I do a couple others on the side. I'm going back um, to get the Lemire and Wolfling's uh, harm harm reduction pathway training in March. I'll be in Connecticut for that. So, yeah, we do certification and then we do trainings for... National and state accreditation. Okay. Um, NAADAC also has a sixty-hour requirement for trainings, as does Colorado, for their wow. state credential.
0: So we do. Oh, so they have a uh, they have a credential for the recovery coach as well.
2: Right. It's actually a, a tri-peer coat uh tri-peer credential. It's for mental health uh, peers and substance abuse peers and family peers. Okay.
0: And so do you, do you assist with that? So if somebody's coming through and they're doing the recovery coaching that you'll assist them in pursuing that credential as well?
2: Yeah, no, we encourage people to do the full accreditation. I think we've put through 100 people in Colorado for a PCA um, to become uh, state peer uh, credentialed peers. Mm-hmm. And I think that NADAC has seen probably 50 or so of our people becomes uh, nationally acc- uh, accredited peers.
0: Okay, that's great. Yeah. Which so what,
2: opens up billing possibilities and all sorts of things. So yeah, it's good.
0: Oh, so that the coaches would be able to um, do billing, use insurance? Yeah,
2: right. Medicaid oh. has a billing um, bucket for um, coaches yeah. and must, many of the private insurances are now moving towards that as well.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. But um, now what is it that, uh, Rod, what, what got you started back in, what'd you say, 2014 when you took the initial c-car okay. training what motivated you to get into this
2: ah, well there it's a sort of harmonic convergence um firstly i started my own recovery journey in 2004 and i got asked to participate in a peer sort of program for people hiv positive individuals here in colorado and okay. um unlike chicago where i'm from and it's not like any big deal if you're hiv positive or not there's a lot of stigma in Colorado. Where there, I guess there still is. And so I started doing um, client advocacy for people, mainly driving people to and from the doctor who weren't going. And then I also co-facilitated a peer support group. And what I learned, um, number one, beyond the fact that all the things I really hated about myself suddenly became things that I could offer to support other people with. So it sort of transformed a lot of my internal guilt. But um, I also saw that the power of somebody non-clinical involved with people is, is pretty big. Yeah. And our support group that I co-facilitated went from having like six people every week going to a year and a half later, there were 22 or 28 people going
0: every
2: week. Oh. And it wasn't because of Rod rushing. It was because the dynamics of the group changed from being totally clinical to more about being checking in, catching up and connecting. and that's really what people need, um, just as much as they need treatment.
0: Yeah. So I became
2: a counselor. I'm a certified addictions counselor here, level three, was the top you can do without a master's. And then I started working in the field and I realized again that the people who were marginalized, LBGT population, sex worker population, IV drug populations, all of whom I worked with, did well initially in treatment, but when it came time for them to launch into recovery communities, they didn't do very well. And um, I assumed that it wasn't because the recovery community organizations or uh, systems like 12-step or whatever weren't working, it was because people had their own internal baggage that would keep them from connect- or connecting. Mm -hmm. so I started peer programs um, so that we could address some of that while they were in treatment and that's how I got involved in all of this and I realized that it needed to be outside of treatment would work better than working inside the treatment program for connecting after treatment if that makes sense it does
0: yeah I mean and I like the you know the non-clinical peer approach is that you know in addition to whatever services you're getting professionally that you know making that connection as a peer and having somebody you know that, that has been through what you've been through or can coach you through what you're going through and help you achieve your goals. I mean, that's something that, you know, when I did the recovery coach Academy and the, the TOT and stuff like that, it's, you know, we're, we're teaching people how to be ambassadors for someone else's recovery, how to help, you know, uh, get over that bridge and find direction. And so, you know, that's, it's impossible for most clinicians to step in at that role um, or most licensed professionals to step into in that role you know, because they have to keep some, some sort of professional separation. They're not able to like get into it with them. So, you know, having these large numbers of people being trained that can be out there and be that additional support that additional resource. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's such a big need. I mean, you know, the numbers of people who are not doing well are just way out of proportion to what things should be like. So yeah, that's kind of how I got started. Uh, with CCAR and the Peer Coach Academy, I was looking for something that was a little more inclusive. And I just kind of approach my trainings as an invitation to the people I'm training to be more generous when they're right. working with other people.
0: And now you're in Colorado, but anyone from anywhere could come and take one of these trainings.
2: Well, we'd love for them to actually. So okay. yeah, the more, <laughs> the more the, the more diverse the training, the more enriched is the training experience. Of course, yeah. The less, the more we learn about things outside of ourselves, the more open we are to being more generous.
0: So now people would have access to that through CCAR, correct?
2: Uh, I don't think it's listed any longer on the CCAR website. Okay. Uh, we are at PCAColorado.com.
0: Oh, okay. It was Uh, such a a good experience to do
1: that, too, because it got me out there to see what was going on out in Colorado. Because when, you know, how often do you have the opportunity to do that? And um, I mean, it was go to Connecticut, go to Colorado. And it was definitely, it it was such a great thing to have done because I got to learn about what was going on out there.
0: That's huge. And so, and um, the mountains are beautiful. Oh, yeah, the food and are so, great. It, and so is
1: Mr. Rushing. He's yeah. he's a lovely person. Yeah. I enjoyed his company very much.
0: So now, how did yeah, you? Did uh, have fun. Now, this has evolved into something where you're you're now collaborating with BSAS on on a, a grant. Is that correct?
2: That is correct.
0: Samsung. So I, I oh, oh Okay, I, I, I'm sorry.
2: Entered, I entered into a SAMHSA grant B-SASA. with a, a Kansas peer program. And we wrote for the Corps grants, which is Building Communities of Recovery. And um, I honestly had been doing most of this work, like doing outreach to rural areas, because of the numbers of the overdose epidemic. And I realized they didn't have much support out there. So I just pretty much wrote to support the work I was already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had encountered um, Lara, Angelo's uh, program, um, through Facebook. And um, so I included that in the grant because Colorado is 20% Hispanic um, um, community. Mm -hmm. So, um, and what I've learned, it's been such a learning experience and I really, I'd love to have Angelo talk about it a little bit is I've learned so much about my own bias about just things being in English, you know? Um, The whole behavioral health field is transforming currently because of the opioid epidemic, all the money coming through, et cetera. Everything is transforming, but it's only transforming in English. And it's only transforming for certain pockets of the population. Right. And right. so there's gonna be a bigger gap than there already exists for um, services moving into the future if we don't make an effort to bring those services, uh, make those
1: services available to more people. Mm. So we're doing it again, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about LARA, which is the uh, Latino Recovery Advocacy?
3: Latino Recovery Advocacy, yes. My name is Angela Garris, and I'm the founder and director. It's it's the first advocacy non-profit organization to promote recovery support services in Spanish, to promote cultural competence, the important elements And building communities. When you build a community, you cannot leave 50% of the population out. Like, you know, Boston is a huge Spanish population, New York, you know, Texas, California. And then when you build a recovery-ready community, you cannot leave, you know, like 57 million people that be Spanish. And we're talking about health disparities. We're talking about 80 years, because when they say the opioid epidemic, I can understand that. But we go we go, this goes beyond, you know, we've been in a public health epidemic the last 100 years. This system don't work for everybody. We're talking about 1920s, 1930s. We're talking about, you know, Johann Harry, and he had a book called Chasing the Scream. This guy came from London to address, you know, the war on drugs and health disparities. How are you going to talk about you know, changing policy and you're gonna leave people of colors, the people more affected in the drug, I'm talking about the crack epidemic it was, deba- was right. devastation. The, the consequences of the crack epidemic in the 80s was like catastrophic, okay, for families, for communities. You didn't have like the advocacy movement, you didn't have like all these tools. What they did was mass incarceration. <laughs> Right, you know, that was because the, nobody could come forward because if you came forward, you went to jail.
2: Right.
3: That was the tool for the government. Okay, we're going to put all these people in jail, you know. And I, I was born in New York, raised in the Dominican Republic. I was the guy who was 40 times to treatment. I spent my whole life in a lot of treatment, and thank God for my family. They was educated, you know, in in, in substance use disorders in those days, like like in in the 80s, and you know, in my uncle. He started to become a doctor in New York and he understood about that. And that's why he he sent me to treatment once, you know, he sent me a lot to treatment. And and I was able to go to treatment and to experience different modalities of treatment in those days, right? Mm -hmm. In 2005, and when I came back, um, I I started working in in Palm Beach County, you know, it was like the capital recovery of the world in those days, you know, and, and I started working in treatment and became a recovery coach and became you know peer support. And I understood because people was coming to treatment, paying all these high deductibles, and then they didn't have no resources for them, no therapists, the people was paying $40,000 a month for treatment. And there was like loss in treatment. And I used to do like everything. And that's why I had the idea. Also, I was working through SAMHSA database and speaking like 800 numbers in the crisis intervention phone line. And I was speaking to everybody in the United States, you know, and, and a lot of mothers and grandmothers was calling me in Spanish, right? And that was devastated. Like, oh, my son is smoking crack or, or shooting dope. And what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take you to church. And that was like, all the culture of treatment wasn't there for them. And I was, no, he needs some medication. He's like, a, he, he got the disease, you know? And I was talking to these people in Spanish and I understood. That I needed to do something, and that's why I created Lara to fight to do the advocacy work. From there, you know, and like Facebook and Drug f- and Drug Free Kids um, Foundation partnership, they did a documentary uh, this year. Um, and when I when they approached me, I say um, we got to do this in Spanish. Everything that I do, gotta reach these 57 million people, and then it's really important that one boss, that project, is is telling some support through Roche Academy that we put that element. Not only Spanish, if you go to a community, you have to understand the culture. You have to understand the need for that community. You understand? Like any community, it can be African-American, it can be Chinese, can be anything. We have to, when we build the recovery community, We have to understand the need for that community. Don't leave people behind. And what happened now, the last 10 years, everything is changing. The way we speak about addiction, the way we treat addiction, we talk about harm reduction. We talk about not abstinence. We talk about all these tools. And once again, help disparities. you know, we're forgetting about the people that most suffer. And that's what I'm trying to promote that everybody gotta be aware of what is cultural competence? What's the definition of cultural competence? What is the definition of basic human rights, right? Imagine that mother. Imagine that mother that that is desperate and and, and don't speak the language. Where's she gonna get information? And that's why I'm creating all these platforms, different platforms to get that information out there.
0: So, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, so you're helping to take a lot of this information that's being created, like through the you know partnership and you know through the coaching academy and stuff like that, to to get to get this done in multiple languages. I mean, you're obviously promoting the Spanish language, but just really recognizing the the cultural atmosphere in these communities and making sure everybody has access to this. And your primary focus, obviously, being uh, the Latino recovery advocacy. Are there other groups that are comparable that are trying to create a platform for their own language and, and stuff like that? Or are you really just kind of promoting it for all languages and for all all, uh, all areas?
3: I'm promoting basically for Spanish, but I also promoting cultural competence in every sense. Right. If your community needs, you know, I'm making aware of organizations that reach out in the community and understand what they need. If they need, you know, all all different languages, you know, that do that, you know? Yep.
2: Well, and family support is very different in Hispanic culture than it is in yeah. Anglo culture. Yep. So even though this term family support is universal, it looks and deliver is delivered very differently by the people who are receiving it and the people who are giving it. Of course. Um, part of the grant, if I can just jump in, um, part of the grant that I'm also excited about is recovery community organizations. And I think you guys on the East Coast are a little more advanced than we are here. Hmm. Um, Having standalone organizations that provide recovery education, addiction treatment education, recovery support services, and community education. Um, We don't have too many of those here. I think there are four or five in Colorado. So part of what we're also doing in the grant is developing new recovery community organizations Especially in rural and parts of Colorado that may not have so much. So hopefully, at the end of our three-year grant, we'll have ten or fifteen new recovery community organizations in the state, and all of those will be uh, exposed to and incorporate cultural um, cultural influences, Spanish-speaking as well as farming versus urban community sort of things, yep. etc. Is that sort of making
0: a little? It bit does, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's Amazing. huge. It's like you got such a diverse group of people out there struggling in a variety of different ways. and I mean you know if you're, if your approach is standard and kind of cookie cutter, um, then you are you're marginalizing an entire group of people by not addressing their issues or at the very least being sensitive and like you said, culturally competent that you know people deal with things in different ways they have different resources, they have different needs and uh, so you know creating those RCOs out in your area so that people have access to services sounds amazing. Well, we hope, I hope it goes well. I mean,
2: it's being pretty well received thus far and, and we'll see, but, you know, and, and I'm sure Maureen, I, you opened my eyes to a couple of these things, but if a family is uh, a parent or a couple of parents are struggling with their kid and trying to figure out the insurance and what they can get, et cetera, um, where do they go? Yeah. And recovery community organizations aren't committed to any one treatment program. So they're able to give a little more um, insight without prejudice about what to do, about what possibilities there are for their their kids.
1: Yeah, because we have, you know, I think now we have a lot of different places in Massachusetts where you can go for for family groups. I can't, I don't, like even in some of our, the more, um, the areas that have more Hispanic people, I can't think of any place that you could go that where the meeting would be in spanish right and we i mean even magnolia magnolia has twenty-five thousand people in it i would love to have a spanish-speaking group in, in magnolia so that family members could go and get the same support that we get you know in all the other groups but right. it would be right. it would require maybe you know somebody who would want to run one of those angelo that right. would be awesome because yeah I see the need. I just, sometimes like you see the need, but I don't know what to do about it. But I, I like you were saying and earlier. that's
3: why, you know, that's why LAD is here. You know, like if you got those concerns, you can call me, we can do the outreach, you know, and we can find out and develop, you know, like a Spanish group in that area. I would you know, love that's, that. That's, yeah. what, that's what I'm doing. Like, you know, like giving that support and translating the material and, and getting the people out there because you know, there's a Spanish speaking therapist around there. I'm working now with Choices on um, Ginger Ross and developing all the training for peer support in Spanish. Uh-huh. And then we're going to use it with, with, with Royal Academy and we're going to train awesome. families. And we're going to train, you know, we're going to train. In, in, she's in, in New Hampshire,
1: right? I, yes. I, I, that's who I did my recovery, my, my initial class with. Ginger yeah, Ross, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. That's great. She's great. She, we got like a couple of months together doing all this, the translation and we're going to team up with Ross. And we're going to, and I'm doing also, and Marine, probably, and Marine, <laughs> <laughs> and the recovery project with Ryan Hampton, I'm part of the recovery project, you know, like that really aggressive advocacy to change policy, because when we talk, we can say a lot, and people say, well, yes, I understand, but when we change the law, and people be like, you know, and, and it's money involved, and it's law involved, and, and maybe people are going to change, you know, and understand then the right way to do this is incorporating, you know, being inclusive,
1: diverse, you know. Well, I don't think, sometimes people don't under, don't, they don't know what they don't know. And I know when I went through the recovery coach Academy and you remember this, we did that power walk where you have to, you know, you understand kind of, because we all have our thing. And as you walk, inevitably you're walking across that floor and, and you're the only one or one of few people that are walking across and you start to understand what that, you know, that, that bias is. But I don't think people realize as hard as all this is, how difficult it is to be a person of color or a person that does not speak um, English to have to go through this process. And how, I mean, talk about left behind, right? We all feel left behind to a certain extent, but when, when you're adding those things into it, it's, it's, it becomes, you know, it becomes even more difficult. And then, you know, decades and decades of, of a different kind of treatment for people who became involved with drugs Wow. And and all that that brings with it as far as family, the family idea of of even reaching out and trying to get help, and I mean we still have it in Massachusetts. I have somebody that that came to me, and uh, you know everywhere he went, and he was a person of color. He got detox, and he was he wasn't being moved along, mm. and until you know. And unfortunately, he passed away too just recently. But I think that this is what happens, and we don't realize this is happening. And even the people that are doing the, you know, maybe acting in a discriminatory way don't even get what they're doing. And that's why I'm glad you're out there drawing attention to it.
2: Hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, um, I, I've had some real aha moments where I have realized how, in, in, grained my own biases you know i'll work on a newsletter or I'll work on a communication or I'll work on a website or whatever and i will complete it and i think i've done a complete a really good job and then i publish it and then i to give one thought to anybody who doesn't understand English. Right. you know it's not right. even in my it's not even in my conscious to consider that yep and that's part of what the problem is trying right. to do things themselves. that's why we need more people at the table absolutely
0: I agree. Absolutely very I agree. Important. I'm glad to hear that you guys are able to uh, embark on this journey, this three year journey to try to uh, develop new resources for people. And, you know, I know um, for myself, I, I guess I, I get, I've been doing this for about 10 years and uh, well, what I do, I work with families and do interventions and such. And, mm-hmm. you know, over the past 10 years, I, I don't get a lot of diversity, you know? So, I mean, I address, I, I get comfortable addressing the population that comes to me. Not thinking that, <clears throat> excuse me. Maybe there's a population of people who don't come to me because I'm not promoting to them. I'm not making my services so available to them or easy to read or find. And uh, you know, I mean, I guess you just don't think about that. You kind of take what comes to you. And, that's
2: and that's the issue, really. I
3: don't sure, know. Yeah. It's cruelty. It's privilege. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Is the way that the the public health system has been like that for the last hundred years? You know, in right. You know, in but have to change when we create this awareness you know it's going to change and that's right. what, what we're doing now with lara and and, and working with different platforms and, and it's going to change because people are open when they bring the, when i bring the awareness oh, oh yes like like massachusetts it's a huge population I, i'm going to start working with different churches and different platforms over there to create programs in spanish and i think people are open to it in in making the steps. You don't have to speak Spanish to to do the outreach, you know? But, well, the other thing is, is there's stigma too.
2: And so I relate a lot of this epidemic or this situation that we find ourselves in to where HIV and AIDS was in the, in the eighties. I mean, there's just so much guilt and shame around families having issues in their, you know, issues. And so they don't, they're afraid to ask for help, they're ashamed to ask for help, let alone thinking that there is actually somebody who might understand or whatever. So it's hard to see over the hill if you don't even know you're looking at a hill. One other thing I just wanna uh, think about I want you to think about it or whatever. They're, you know, I'm such a goofy guy, but mm-hmm. um, the, the AIDS, the AIDS, uh, the HIV treatment community, the AIDS um, community globally, has shifted its approach to how they um, treat um, populations, uh, uh, infected populations or individuals. They used to have treatment per individual. You know, like it's you come in and see the doctor and you do this and The approach was all individualized, and they have, over the years, of providing treatment for a lot of people with chronic illnesses. They have zoomed out on how they look at treating and working with uh, the issue. And so uh, they have this thing of U equals U, do you know about this? No. Which is undetectable equals um, untransmittable. So if we can get you to the place where you're untransmittable un, um, or, you know, you're undetectable, uh-huh. then you're not going to be a danger to anybody else in the community, right? Wow. And so they stopped looking at individuals and started looking at their entire population of cities and communities and trying to get the number of undetectables high, so high that there wouldn't be any more increase in um, uh, transmissions. And so isn't it crazy yeah. to, lo- to, just... look at, uh, to look at the system from a, a, from a community standpoint instead of an individual case standpoint, you know? Yeah. Really and so I think that there's some room for insight and growth for substance use and recovery and mental health if we started to look at it from the same way. If we could get it to the place where everybody's treated instead of treating individual. You know, making making it look at a community sort of caseload instead of uh, individual caseload. Anyway, that's that's
1: a, no, that's interesting. I, I mean, speaking, have you noticed that there's a? And I don't, I don't know the stats on this. That there's a climb, we seen um an upward climb in the cases of uh, AIDS diagnosed recently.
2: Yeah, and that's because of the shifts in policies that have happened uh,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: under under the last three five years. I think a lot of the, a lot, the prep has gone away in a lot of places. I think that um, safety, um, syringe exchange, all those things are being pulled because of ph- philosophical reasons. Yeah. And not because of caring for the people reasons.
1: Yeah, because yeah. I know that I've had three people in probably the last six months that I know that have been diagnosed, and I can't, the last time I remember wow. that happened, it was in the 80s.
3: Wow. I know, I know, <clears throat> it's nuts. And something really important, with, when we go when we learn from history when we were, when we learn from this system you know mm-hmm. and we we have to go back you know we have to understand the heroin epidemic in 1970s you know is that movie does a washington american gangster that they present how devastated was the heroin epidemic in the african-american community in 1960s and 50s how like people like Mal Davis, you know, like all these jazz musicians in the fifties and forties, Joe Contrain, and, and 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 all these great musicians was affected through through substance use disorders, you know, alcohol, and and, and how devastated it was for them the story of Billie Holiday, and and, and imagine all the like the African American community in the fifties and the forties, they didn't. They didn't have no hospitals to go to. They have no treatment. And we, when we go, when we go and see history and the different epidemics, not only the opioid epidemic now, but when when we study history, we learn, and then we change. and And I'm really optimistic, you know, that we're gonna change and we're gonna create more diversity and inclusion, and and we're gonna love everybody because I think. Support services, recovery support services, it's like love, you know, bringing that tools to that mother, bringing that tool to that grandmother that they don't understand about addiction, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think we're going, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to be, that we're going to change this in the future.
1: I hope so, I hope you're right. Mm -hmm. Same.
3: I'm just
2: pushing rocks off the road. I don't know about optimistic, but I'm just pushing, shoveling rocks off the road.
1: So we can get that's all I'm to We got to get the families involved because that's what happened, you know, with the HIV is that the family started to speak up and, and, and get involved. So we have to make that happen. And I think it needs to be, I always say that it needs to be more than the families. That uh, have had that have lost people. We have to have the families that have gotten through this and gotten to the other side, and now we should have all this energy and enthusiasm to make things better for the people that are still struggling. We have to get our families involved in this, and I, I would love to be able to get some Hispanic families at, um, leading the way in, on Magnolia as well. There's, a,
2: there's probably a funding possibility in there, Maureen.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm
2: telling
1: you. No, it's, it just needs to happen. You know, yeah. it needs to happen.
3: Yeah. We we we're, we're gonna continue this conversation. You know, he got my email. I'm gonna send you an email where like with all the resume, that everything that we did. You know, in the last four years, yeah. and yeah. and you know, we work with Bill White. We yeah. we, we, we do a lot of writing yeah. for yeah. different advocacy groups, and, and and I'm I'm hoping to go there and create a system. You know, in Massachusetts. And for families and individuals for recovery support services. So part of, oh, I'm sorry. No,
2: go ahead. Part of what I hope happens since we're working with SAMHSA is that at the end of two or three years, we will have developed templates mm-hmm. um, that, that people don't have to recreate everything. Right. So there'll be a guide, you know, there'll be a a, a a roadway or a roadmap or whatever to doing some of these things. So and we hope that um, by replicating it here in Colorado, we can learn a few things about how you have to be resilient or or whatever to make to make it to make it happen in different arenas and different communities. So hopefully all that will translate at the end of our three-year grant with Samson so that things can be plugged into New Mexico and um, Maine and other, other states and communities as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that the two of you are working together and that you're continuing to try to make it better for everybody, which is what I, that's, that's just you, Rod. I know that. And it's so nice (laughs) to be introduced to um, Angela, who seems to be doing this in the, in the Latino community. And it's, I thank you for that. So, um, if somebody wants to get in touch with either one of you, ask more questions, see what you're doing, or get involved somehow, how should they get in touch with you?
2: Well, they can uh, reach me at rod at pcacolorado.com. We have a 800 a number. I don't answer it all the time, 800 604 8978, but I always respond.
1: So. Okay.
3: And, and, you know, my, my e- I'm going to send you my information, my email, Lagares like 441 at gmail. And when you Google Latino recovery advocacy, you know, you're going to see like, you know, everything there, you know, I got a Facebook page. I'm developing now a website, mm-hmm. but my number is 561-727-7588, and I'm going to send you that information so you can post it on your website, and, and we open, and I'm always, you know, answering the phone, emails, you know, and doing the outreach in the community.
1: Can you share that in Spanish, Angela?
3: Claro, es muy importante para las familias que busquen ayuda tú sabes, con este problema de salud mental y adicción y, se, y vamos a crear sistemas de apoyo para las familias, grupos para las familias, you know, eh, servicios de recuperación para individuos que están en el proceso y la de eh, una organización sin fines de lucro que promueve salud mental y adicción organizando comunidades information
1: wonderful thank you so much excellent thank you oh you guys thanks so much for having thank you thanks for coming on appreciate I appreciate it. it It was
0: very nice to meet you rod i apologize that i didn't get to come out and do your tot training
1: uh, well, i did yeah. mine
0: down in connecticut anyway but um <laughs> and angelo was very nice to meet you and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that there is somebody out there that's giving a voice to this population and making sure it's that amazing, these, isn't these it? services yeah, it really are going are, are to be accessible by you know uh, Uh, the people who need it so thank you very much for doing what you do thank Thank
1: you you for the platform
0: all right guys take care
1: thank you